BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Picture a coral reef and you probably have visions of flounder from The Little Mermaid or crush from Finding Nemo. Coral reefs should be brimming with life and are one of Earth's most diverse ecosystems, providing significant ecological, economic, and societal benefits. Unfortunately, they are threatened by climate change, pollution, and more. Dr. Derek Manzello, an award-winning coral reef ecologist, leads NOAA's efforts to watch out for the coral reef. The Coral Reef Watch Program seeks to understand and predict the trends in warming oceans and our fragile coral reefs. Derek, welcome to the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, is it correct that I should call you a coral geek? We often ask the, the guests, how did you become a weather geek? How did you become a coral geek? Uh, I became a coral geek because, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. Um, and I've always just really been fascinated by water and the ocean. Um, so I became a coral geek by uh, going to college at the University of Miami um, and learning about marine science and marine biology. And uh, I just fell in love with coral reefs when I was uh, there getting my degree. At this point, I want to give the listeners a bit of background on Derek. Uh, he's the coordinator of NOAA's Coral Reef Watch program and in 2020 and 2021 led the development and implementation of the National Coral Reef Monitoring Program for Na uh, NOAA's AOML in Miami. He's published several articles and publications on the topic. And in 2020, he was awarded with the U.S. Department of Commerce's Bronze Medal for leading the federal response to identify, understand, track, and mitigate the devastating effects of stony coral tissue loss in Florida. So we have the guy. If we want to know about coral, coral reef, and impacts from climate change and so forth, we, we have the person that, that we want to hear from here. So let's let's jump right in. Um, and again, thanks to Jen Corfagno for these um, sort of production notes today. She says, pun intended, the water is warm. Sea surface temperatures have been making headlines this year. And I mean, if anyone's been following on Twitter or in the news, the sea surface temperatures have been tremendous, particularly in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, particularly in the Atlantic main development region where we watch for hurricanes and in the Gulf of Mexico. The shallow waters near the Florida Keys have been hovering near 100 degrees. How, just, let's just cut, cut to it. How big of a problem are these types of temperatures for ecosystems in the water? Uh, this is a huge problem for coral reefs. So reef-building corals live very near their upper thermal limits. Uh, most tropical marine organisms actually live very near their upper thermal limits. So all it really takes is temperatures to be about one or two degrees Celsius, which is about two to three degrees Fahrenheit above the maximum summertime temperatures they normally experience. And then corals and other marine animals become very stressed. So when a coral becomes stressed, uh, it will lose its symbi symbiotic algae. So corals are an animal, but they live in a symbiosis with a type of dinoflagellate algae that lives in their tissues. And these algae provide upwards of about 95% of the nutritional requirements of the coral animal. However, it's very sensitive to elevated temperatures. So when temperatures ramp up, corals become stressed. Uh, 
basically the algae become toxic and they get expelled because of high temperatures and high light. Uh, and what happens is the coral then will go through a period of essential slow starvation because it, it bleaches and turns white and loses all that fantastic, beautiful colors we normally associate with corals. So heat stress to corals is now accepted as the uh, number one threat facing coral reefs over this century because coral bleaching is not a death sentence, but corals, if they can recover from bleaching, it's great, you know, if they can survive, but they will still have uh, lasting physiological impacts for years after the bleaching event. So we know that corals become immunocompromised after they bleach. So they become very susceptible to disease outbreaks uh, upwards of two years after uh, a bleaching event. Also, coral growth rates and reproduction will essentially slow down and go to zero for anywhere from two to four years after they bleach. So heat stress is really an existential threat to the very existence of corals and coral reefs as we know them. So I wanted to kind of get into the, setting the context here, and I should have asked this question beforehand because clearly the elevated temperatures are a threat to coral, but to reset for the listeners and the viewers the role that coral reefs play in ecosystems and why they're so important to be healthy. So coral reefs are often called the rainforest of the sea, and this is because they host more biodiversity in the ocean than any other ecosystem in the marine realm. So it's estimated that about 25% of all marine species associate with coral reefs at some point in their lives. So again, we have this incredible uh, repository of biodiversity in the ocean that is found in coral reefs. Uh, and coral reefs uh, actually act as a source for pharmaceutical compounds for things like drugs for humans. Uh, but more, uh, perhaps more importantly to humans is coral reefs provide coast water, uh, coastal protection and, and uh, what they do is they basically attenuate wave action during things like storms and hurricane events, protecting coastlines from severe damage. Um, and it also protects coastlines from uh, marine flooding and sea level rise as well. So in addition to this, coral reefs are providing tons of ecological surface, uh, services for the human communities that depend on them. So many island nations in the Pacific are wholly dependent on coral reefs for their proteins, for fishing, and things like that for their, their very survival. Um, and again, in places like the Florida Keys, people depend on coral reefs for uh, scuba diving. Uh, it, they contribute a lot of money to tourism. People do a lot of fishing around coral reefs. So coral reefs are really kind of just, uh, I don't know the, the proper word, but you know they're providing so many ecological services and they're so incredibly valuable on so many different levels uh, to humans as well as the, the ecosystem of the, the wider ocean. Yeah, I know Noah shared some photos recently of, I guess it's called Chica Rock Reef of uh, bleaching in that area, a popular diving and snorkeling spot off the coast of Florida. And I, I would imagine these marine heat waves have been just sort of devastating to those particular communities. Um, maybe that's a term that many listeners or watch, viewers have not heard of. Can you, can you talk a little bit? We I think people have a sense of what a, a heat wave is from the standpoint of air temperature, but there's this terminology that those of us in this community are familiar with called a marine heat wave. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. So a marine heat wave is essentially the same thing as a, a heat wave on, on land or, you know, in the atmosphere. So about 90% of the heat uh, 
due to climate change and, and warming has been absorbed by the ocean. So a marine heat wave simply represents when temperatures in the ocean go above the average conditions that are normally experienced at any given time of the year. So a marine heat wave can technically happen any time of the year temperatures are above average. Uh, marine heat waves that are most uh, important for corals, again, are what occur in the summer because corals are very, very sensitive to temperatures going above what they normally experience during an average year. So again, marine heat waves are very similar to, like I said, a heat wave on land. It's just essentially happening in the ocean. Talking with Derek Manzello from NOAA. And when we get back, I'm going to ask Derek about some of the programs that he's involved with at NOAA. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Derek Manzello from NOAA. And the NOAA Coral Reef Watch Program, I'm familiar with it, and I know a great deal about it, but I think it's something that our listeners and viewers would be very interested in. So give us, if you will, the 101 on, on what the program is and why it, why it was uh, developed. Sure. Um, so Coral Reef Watch's roots actually... Uh, began in about 1997. That is when the program first spun up. Uh, and what really put Coral Reef Watch on the map was it was able to predict uh, mass coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef in 1998. Uh, and that really got buy-in from the academic, scientific, and management community at that time. And, and the rest is really history, as they say. So taking a step back, <clears throat> what Coral Reef Watch does is it use, use, uh, utilizes primarily satellite data to predict uh, ecosystem health or marine disturbance events. So we're primarily interested in the surface temperature because of the critical dependence of temperature to coral reefs. So Coral Reef Watch, we uh, utilize geostationary and polar orbiting satellites to provide a global five kilometer by five kilometer resolution sea surface temperature product uh, on a daily basis for basically the entire planet. So what this means is we know the sea surface temperatures, they're occurring on every reef around the globe uh, every day. And all we really need to do is look at <clears throat> deviations or anomalies in those temperatures relative to average conditions to understand when coral reefs become stressed. 
So it's not a super complicated uh, algorithm, if you will. It's basically looking at how much temperatures are above average conditions. And again, the, the, the response of the corals and the coral reef, it's a time and dose response. So it has to do with how, how high the magnitude of the deviation of temperature is and how long it lasts. So Coral Reef Watch is essentially, the way to think about it, it's, it's like having eyes in the sky for coral reef health for the whole world. So we're able to predict uh, coral bleaching events all around the world uh, in near real time. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm teaching a satellite meteorology class right now at the University of Georgia, and I, I don't talk much about Coral Reef Watch, and I think I'll add it in towards the end of the semester here, perhaps to the chagrin of my students, but I think it's something that uh, I, I want to integrate more into the climate and climate monitoring sections of the class, so thank you for that. Is it just the sea surface temperature? I know when we talk hurricanes, you often hear about the sea surface temperatures that the hurricane is moving over. Uh, is it for coral reef the sea surface temperature as a proxy, or is it really the the depth of warm water that's a problem, or is it? A, or are we just monitoring sea surface temperature because it's the easiest thing to access from the satellite? So sea surface temperature is uh, pretty much the only thing you can monitor from the satellites because you know it's just measuring the uh, the heat coming off the surface of the ocean. Um, but what we found, you know, after thirty years of research, is that uh, sea surface temperature patterns really, really do a great job of, of estimating bulk water temperatures. So again, for coral reefs and, and basically for life as we know it, temperature is usually the dominant factor that controls all life processes, right? So life exists within a very narrow temperature range. Um, just ask your doctor, you know, when our temperatures go above or below 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, things start going haywire, right? So it's similar for organisms that live live in the sea. So there are other uh, factors that definitely impact the health, the structure, the function of coral reef ecosystems. But temperature is basically the, the real driving variable that it, that is fundamentally important for every process you're going to see on a coral reef. You know, I, I th something that you said it was interesting, and I want to talk with Derek Manzello from NOAA, and you, you mentioned about temperature. But something you mentioned earlier kind of piqued my interest when you said that coral reefs are essential for wave buffering or wave mitigation, I believe it is. And I, I'm hearing more and more in my academic circles about engineering with nature and nature-based solutions as a way to mitigate wave action and storm surge damage and so forth. So is it correct to say that coral reefs are a part of nature's sort of natural mitigation strategy for extreme events? Absolutely. So there's actually two big projects going on right now uh, through the University of Hawaii and the University of Miami. And what the project uh, is focusing on is examining the potential of living natural breakwaters. So essentially building uh, living coral reef structures, uh, essentially taking artificial structures and planting living corals on them to, to create these natural breakwaters for, you know, fundamental places like uh, the Florida Keys, where you know, the coral reefs there uh, are essentially potentially not providing as much breakwater protection as they did historically because, unfortunately, they've been degraded over the past 40 years or so. When when we see these massive marine heat waves and, and significant bleaching events that we've seen particularly this year, <laughs> excuse me, are there things we can do? 
So uh, yes, there are some inter intervention activities that can be done. So in Florida this year, what we saw was a really rapid response by the management community, coral reef management community, coral restoration community, as well as state, local, and federal government organizations. Uh, it, and because it got so hot so soon in Florida this year, the activities that took place were essentially coral rescue. So people mobilized uh, dive teams to go out and essentially rescue corals, pull them out of the ocean and put them in land-based nurseries. And the rationale for this was they want to save as much genetic diversity as possible because this heat stress event was so severe. Uh, there are less drastic measures that can be taken. So another thing that took place in Florida this year is they moved corals from shallow water to deeper water because as you go down in the ocean, it, it tends to cool off and there's less light at deeper depths. And again, the bleaching response is really due to elevated temperature combined with high light. So if you shade a coral or move it to deeper water, then it will likely bleach less and potentially suffer uh, less impacts from the bleaching event. Um, in, in addition to that, there is really uh, a lot of scientific research that's going into a process called assisted evolution. And essentially what this means is that researchers in primarily places like Hawaii, Australia, as well as Florida, are, are, are really looking for heat-tolerant coral species and heat-tolerant coral genotypes. And a genotype is just a, a fancy biological way of saying individual. So you and I are all genotypes, right? So if you look at humans and draw an analogy there, you know, we have all a whole wide gamut of levels of fitness, right? Not all of us are, are Usain Bolt, right? So <laughs> most most of us are falling, you know, right in the middle of that bell curve. And, right. you know, we're not we're probably not really that great athletes, you know, things like that. But for coral minds we think we are. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, right? Um, but for corals it's similar, right? So there's there's some genotypes that are able to withstand heat. And there's other genotypes that, you know, you look at them the wrong way and they just drop dead. So scientists are really trying to harness uh, those heat tolerant genotypes and, and understand the genetics behind why they're heat tolerant. And they're engaged in programs uh, like selective breeding. So taking heat tolerant corals and breeding them with corals that are less heat tolerant and potentially, you know, creating offspring that will be able to better weather uh, ocean warming. So when we come back on the Weather Geeks podcast, I understand that Derek has taken over 1,000 dives in his career or in his leisure. I'm going to ask him the big question next. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. 
The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Derek Manzello from NOAA. And I want to get back to Corolla Reef and climate change in, in a moment, but I understand you've taken a thousand dives in your log book. Are there any particular places that you would say are your favorite places to dive? So my favorite place to dive in the world is what is referred to as the Coral Triangle. So the Coral Triangle is uh, roughly a, a triangle shape that starts in the Philippines and goes down to Indonesia, east of Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. And the reason this is my favorite place to dive is because this is the center or the hotspot of global marine biodiversity. Mm. So there are more coral species, more fish species, more you know species of the associated organisms that live on reefs, endless locations than anywhere else in the world. Um, what I always tell people is it's, it, every time you go diving in the Philippines, you can literally see an animal or some kind of organism that you had no idea existed on planet Earth. I mean, it's wow. incredible. It's just an incredible experience. Um, but Again, I'm a very lucky person in that I've been able to dive all over the world, uh, but that particular location, it just really has a special place in my heart. Speaking of all over the world, that brings to bear question, are there any places around the world that are particularly vulnerable as we're seeing these climate warming or bleaching events, or, or is it sort of uniquely spread across, or not uniquely, but uniformly spread across uh, anywhere that the water's warming? I'm just curious if there are any particular places that are uh, particularly vulnerable. So there has been a lot of research uh, into the concept of identifying what are called refugia versus hotspots. So a hotspot would be a location that is particularly vulnerable to warming impacts, whereas the refugia would be a location that, you know, potentially due to oceanographic factors, things like currents or uh, other factors that limit the amount of heat stress that accumulates in these locations. Um, but unfortunately, now uh, on planet Earth, there are very, very few locations that have not yet experienced uh, heat stress and coral bleaching events. Uh, one such location would be Raja Ampat in Indonesia. And the reason this location is potentially a refugia is because of the unique bathymetry of, of the waters around here. It, it creates a, a situation where you have tides forcing upwelling and upwelling is a process where deep waters come to the surface. So you have daily intrusions of cold water coming to the surface in places like Raja Ampat, and this might create potential refugia. Uh, in terms of climate hotspots, um, so mass coral bleaching has unfortunately been with us now for 40 years. The first time mass coral bleaching was documented was in the entire Eastern Tropical Pacific on the back of the 1982-83 El Nino, which at that time was the warmest El Nino, most severe El Nino on record. Unfortunately, we beat that now uh, a few times. Um, so what happened in 1982-83 is that there was mass coral bleaching, like I said, throughout the Eastern Tropical Pacific. It was most severe in the southern Galapagos Islands. 
Now, heat stress was so severe there that 95 to 99% of all the coral died wow. within a matter of months. And what was most damaging in this location is that not only did the coral die, but the entire reef framework structure built by the coral skeleton completely eroded away in about 10 years' time. Wow. And the reason that is so damaging is because I said that the myriad biodiversity that depends on coral reefs are all utilizing that three-dimensional, architecturally complex structure as habitat, right? So if you go diving on a coral reef, you're going to see all kinds of animals and fish and things hiding within that, that very complicated structure created by the coral skeleton. So when you take that away, you're basically taking away the habitat and you just lose a ton of marine biodiversity. So Galapagos is essentially the most extreme example we have of climate change impacts because you essentially lost the entire coral reef ecosystem in, a, in essentially less than a decade. And all the corals died there in, uh, in less than you know, a few months time. Um, and one of the things, you know, people will always say is, well, you know, people haven't been studying coral reefs that long. Maybe this is part of the natural process. Well, people have been studying corals for well over 300 years. Charles Darwin did a lot of work on coral reefs, believe it or not. Um, and coral bleaching has been known for well over 100 years. But what makes what is going on unique right now is there is no precedent for large scale mass bleaching events that we're seeing now. The most severe, I would say, bleaching event that happened before 1982-83 was in Jamaica in the early 1960s. Uh, Hurricane Allen came through and dumped so much rain and fresh water that it just lowered the salt content of the water and caused the mass coral bleaching and death event in Jamaica. But again, we're not talking about thousands of miles of reefs bleaching, you know, at the same exact time like what we have right now in the Caribbean, in the eastern tropical Pacific. I mean, we're we're experiencing a near global coral bleaching event right now. If you pick the spot on the map in the Caribbean and jump in the water right now, you're going to see bleached corals, unfortunately. Wow. And I, I'm glad you brought that up about this sort of, because obviously as, as climate scientists, we often get the sort of, well, these things happen in cycles or it's a naturally naturally varying process and so forth. And so I, I'm glad you sort of dealt with this notion that sure, there's been naturally occurring bleaching events, but scale of these bleaching events in modern times. And I would imagine the sort of rate of change of them as well. I mean, we often often talk about sort of, yeah, sure, we, we have climate changes that are natural, but some of the things we're seeing in recent times are just in terms, if you go back to our old calculus class derivative, the rate of change of these things is, is dramatic. Are, 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 you know, you, we often talk about, from a broad climate change perspective, mitigation strategies and adaptation strategies for us as humans and in our society. Do coral adapt in any ways? And is that a good or bad thing if they do? So coral can definitely adapt. But again, you hit the nail on the head. It's the rate of change that is killing corals and killing coral reefs. So sclerotinian corals, which are what build reefs today, have been around for more than 200 million years. So they've, you know, survived extinction events. So when the dinosaurs all died, there was a huge drop in coral species, but some species did survive. The issue is, you know, if we look into the geologic past, um, one of the nice things about corals and coral reefs is they leave, they leave a geological record, right? So you can look back in time at coral growth rates. You can look back at time at how fast reefs grew. Uh, and what we know is that since sea level stabilized, you know, about 10,000 years or so ago, coral reefs around the planet have been growing very, very well, 
happily over the last 10,000 years. So the entire Great Barrier Reef only really developed within the last 10,000 years. And this is because the, the shelf, the shallow shelf off of Eastern Australia flooded as sea level rose. <clears throat> so corals, uh, a lot of corals are going to survive and adapt. The issue is the rate that that happens is going to be over thousands of years, right? So we're looking at a threat that potentially is going to kill a lot of corals and a lot of reefs in a matter of decades. And it's going to take thousands of years before those guys can bounce back and really start adapting uh, at the level, at the scale, to be able to start building reefs again like, like they have been for millennia. So what's next for you and either personally as a, a scientist or from your program standpoint, what are you keeping your eye on in the next zero to five years? Well, the biggest concern we have right now is that we may be on the cusp of another global coral bleaching event. So there has been three global coral bleaching events <clears throat> so far. And when I say global coral bleaching event, I mean coral bleaching in the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and the Indian Ocean. So the first one that happened was in 1998. There was another one in 2010, and then there was another one over three years from 2014 to 2017. So in 2014 and 2017, more than 75% of all reefs on the planet experienced bleaching level heat stress, and more than half the reefs experienced uh, more than one bleaching event in essence. And during this event, places that were previously thought to be refuges or refugia, like the Northern Great Barrier Reef, experience severe heat stress and mass mortality of corals. So the fact that we might be entering another global mass bleaching event is causing a lot of concern. I don't want to say panic, but it, it is causing a little bit of panic. Um, you know, and I'm communicating with colleagues in Australia on a daily basis because their question is, is the Great Barrier Reef going to bleach this year? Is it going to be as bad as what just happened in the Caribbean? So to give you a perspective, in 2023 alone, we have confirmed reports of mass coral bleaching from 35 different countries and territories across five different oceans and seas. So like I said, the entire Northwest Atlantic Ocean essentially bleached this year. I mean, there was nowhere in the Atlantic Ocean that was not bleaching and not experiencing stress. Eastern Tropical Pacific, classic textbook El Nino pattern. The entire Eastern Tropical Pacific was the first to bleach in May. And then, then the heat basically spread to the Caribbean region. There's also mass coral bleaching that has happened in the Persian Gulf, in the Red Sea, and the Gulf of Aden. So for this event to go truly global, all it's going to take is a reef to bleach in, in the Indian Ocean, which could happen within the next several months. So our job here at Coral Reef Watch right now is really to document what is happening, uh, as well as to alert our partners and collaborators on the ground in these locations so they can get out and monitor and understand the impacts and what's happening and potentially if they're losing any of these valuable resources, but also to do these vital efforts like interventions, like we saw in Florida this year, where you know hundreds of people and, and so much manpower and effort went into going out and salvaging coral diversity because the event was so extreme that there was a fear that there could have been a local scale uh, extinction. Wow. Just uh, thank you for what you're doing. It's just uh, devastating to hear what's happening to coral. And I know how important it is to our ecosystem and various other things that we talked about today. Where where can people on social media or on, on the internet find out more about the program? 
So Coral Reef Watch has its own uh, Twitter and Facebook account. Uh, and NOAA's Coral Reef Watch has been funded by the, the NOAA Coral Reef Conservation Program uh, for well over 23 years now. So those are the, the Coral Reef Conservation Program is what is responsible for the existence of Coral Reef Watch. So both of those programs uh, have a very widespread internet presence. So if you want to know more about coral reefs or find links to different areas of uh, researchers, activities, programs, then definitely check out NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program, as well as the Coral Reef Watch website. Because the Coral Reef Watch, we, we provide a lot of different data products. Our primary focus is on coral bleaching. But again, we provide a lot of different data products. Um, and moving forward into the future, we're always looking for more observations of in-water bleaching because this helps us calibrate and validate our, our predictions moving forward to make sure we're providing the most uh, accurate information for our end users on the ground. Well, we have to end it there. This has been an amazing discussion, Derek. Thank you so much for joining us. But before we get out of here, it's time for our Geek of the Week. Uh, we like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great oceanographer, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is John Gage. John is the New Hampshire State Coordinator for Citizens Climate Lobby. He is a part of a volunteer grass grassroots effort in New Hampshire to reduce climate pollution and protect the economy. His most memorable event is the 1998 Northeast Ice Storm. John is fascinated by the science and he attributed, I'm sorry, John is fascinated by the science that can attribute weather to climate events and global warming. If you know someone that is deserving of our next Geek of the Week, feel free to follow our social media pages and nominate them or nominate yourself. And also give us a shout out on Twitter or social media if you're listening to the podcast, watching it on the Weather Channel streaming app and enjoying it, or even if there's feedback. So thank you very much again for joining us. And Derek, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. Shepard. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. See you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.